Thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. My name is Gregory Hargreaves, Program Officer in the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. Now, you know, during these History Hangouts, we like to introduce you to some of the great research being done using the historical collections at the Hagley Library, especially by folks who have received support from the Hagley Center in the form of research grants and fellowships. One such scholar joining me today is Alex Fleet, PhD candidate at Wayne State University, and we'll be discussing his dissertation project titled Company Unions and Worker Identity. Alex, thanks for speaking with me today. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, it's great. Let's start with your project in general terms. What is it that you're researching and writing about? So my focus is on non-union employee representation plans, or colloquially known as company unions, Mm -hmm. which were these employer-sponsored alternatives to labor unions that started in the early 20th century and really picked up after World War I. Uh, They pick up again even with more employer enthusiasm during the 1930s in response to the National Labor Relations Act. Mm -hmm. But my focus is on this period after World War I. So the, uh, the late 19-teens, 1920s primarily then? Yeah, so these projects start in response to the wave of labor strikes that take place following the end of World War I during 1919, especially mm-hmm. as a response to the wave of steel strikes that take place. Uh, employers across the country start to recognize that the management or the labor management order that dominated the 1910s was no longer viable and that the many major employers across the country recognized that they needed to take a new approach to uh, labor management relations in order Mm. to address a lot of the concerns that employees had uh, raised during the war and as part of the strikes in the post-war era Mm. and as well as many labor historians have acknowledged, this was in many cases a way to curtail uh, labor union activism on uh, work sites. Mm-hmm. Well, let's sort of uh, take a look backward momentarily. What was it about the labor management regime preceding 1919 that came to feel inadequate to management and corporate ownership at this point? So that's an interesting question because employers, uh, union organizers, and government officials all had varying uh, perspectives on uh, what had led to the failure of this order. Both government officials and labor union leaders insisted that labor needed a greater say in the workplace. And for many of the employers who installed these company unions, that they acknowledged this as well, that the labor order of the 1900s and 1910s had been a paternalistic, almost tyrannical order. Mm -hmm. Uh, You see this particularly in the rubber industry, which is one of the subjects of my research, where the India Rubber World, the trade journal for rubber engineers, which also targeted management at the major rubber companies, acknowledged that in various articles throughout 1918, 1919, and 1920, that management had been overly dictatorial towards labor, and that the uh, paternalistic attitude that management had taken towards labor had really fostered 
the resentment that many workers held towards management. Mm -hmm. And so companies needed to take managerial reforms. They were fairly vague about what that constituted in order to foster goodwill among employees. For companies like Goodyear, who I studied, that involved establishing a company union and giving it a fairly substantial amount of power throughout the 1920s. Hmm. Well, how would a company union be constituted and organized and what powers would it be granted? So that's another interesting question because it varies quite heavily depending Mm -hmm. on the company you're looking at. Mm -hmm. For uh, Bethlehem Steel, who I studied at Hagley, uh, this took the form of a series of joint committees, which included representatives from employees and representatives from management who met monthly to discuss various issues and would have annual conferences to discuss larger uh, company scale uh, topics. Mm-hmm. At Goodyear, meanwhile, they actually modeled their company union after Congress. So they established a house of, effectively a house of representatives in a Senate for employees, which would meet with a representative of management, which was usually the factory manager at the time, Paul Litchfield. And of course, this would work basically like Congress. The Industrial Assembly is what Goodyear called its company union. They would pass a series of resolutions and ultimately Litchfield could either agree to these or veto them, at which point the Congress could move to uh, overrule the veto if they had sufficient votes, at which case the procedures become a bit less unclear. Uh, this happens during a few different wage disputes, but ultimately there's a lot of different ways that these could be organized. The issues that they even could uh, discuss would depend on the company union as well. Some did not allow uh, for company unions to discuss issues of wages. Hmm. Goodyear and Bethlehem are examples of companies that did allow this Hmm. to varying degrees. Mm -hmm. So it seems like there's a whole spectrum, perhaps not a a best practices um, for this that all companies are using. There's not a standard playbook, maybe. And this is one of the limitations that company unions face throughout the 1920s and 1930s -hmm. as employers attempt to present these as an effective alternative to labor unions is the incredibly diverse array of uh, structures that company unions take. The the real, there's not much coordination between companies that Mm -hmm. implement these outside Mm -hmm. of a few uh, major examples. And so some of these company unions seem to work very well and others are very clearly just stitched together. Hmm. Well, uh, could you perhaps uh, give us an illustrative example of one that worked quite well and why, and one that uh, did not so? Well, the case, Goodyear is a pretty good example of one that actually works very well. It's able, Hmm. it's implemented shortly after World War I, and it's actually able to stick around until the Supreme Court upholds the National Labor Relations Act, which leads to the national ban of 
a labor union or a company union. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And throughout the 19 or the early 1930s, the company union is able to somewhat resist the efforts of labor union organizers mm-hmm. to uh, organize strikes on uh, Goodyear's uh, factories. Mm-hmm. However, throughout the middle of the 1930s, as independent labor organizers are able to pick up steam, they're also able to use the industrial assembly as a staging ground for strikes, insisting Hmm. that the industrial assembly hold referendums on strikes, on topics of wages and uh, hour schedules that ultimately emboldens the industrial assembly in ways to become a more militant force for uh, labor's voice at Goodyear. Hmm. And so it's it's an example of a, an effective company union because of it becomes more independently acting than it was originally intended, perhaps. In a sense, one of the things that I find interesting about this topic, uh, and one is that I'm interested in understanding how these industry or these company unions shaped mm-hmm. the uh, consciousness and identity of workers throughout mm-hmm. the 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. And so in the case of the Industrial Assembly, one of the problems for it is that it works so well that uh, it ends up undermining its own one of its own purposes which is to keep uh, labor management under the control of Goodyear. Mm-hmm. So I suppose that's one of the chief distinguishing features between a company union and a true labor union is that one is organized by the company and one is organized independently by workers. Is that is that correct? Yeah and the representatives where they're paid sometimes they take salaries for their role as a representative in addition to their role as an employee Mm -hmm. and in those cases it's always their salary is always provided by the company itself Mm -hmm. Hmm. seems like there might be uh in some cases there a real conflict of interests that had consistently been the charge of labor union organizers and uh left-wing activists throughout the 20s that Mm. the fact that these representatives took salaries and were still employed at the behest of management meant that their ability to fight for uh, workers was really conditional. Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, let's sort of drill down to your main interest here and how these company unions intersect with worker identity. Could you perhaps elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so the 1920s are an era that historically labor historians have treated as this sort of dead decade where labor unions were in retreat. Um, the Supreme Court and Congress were incredibly hostile towards union interests. Mm-hmm. And th- this is the era where the AFL goes into deep decline. And it's really only during 1933 with the passage of the National Industrial Recovery Act that workers or that unions start to recover. More recent literature have tried to push back against that narrative and present the 1920s as an era where workers and union organizers sort of recoup and re-strategize for how to continue winning, how to experience a resurgence, which ultimately culminates in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. My interest is kind of in that vein, 
What I'm interested in, though, is less topics about how workers and uh, union organizers attempted to push back against uh, management and look at how the structure of the workplace changes throughout the 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. How do, especially company unions, how do these restructure the way that workers and management relate to one another throughout the 1920s? How do the rules that these set shape the way in the 1930s that unions attempt to engage with workers as they attempt to reorganize industries like steel? Mm-hmm. So I'm looking, I'm interested in understanding how the workplace itself changes over the 20s and 30s. And what role do company unions play in those changes? And how important, if at all, are those changes when unions start making the serious effort to organize industries like steel, rubber, or railroads? Hmm. Well, I know you're still in the midst of your project, but could you perhaps give us some tentative conclusions? What have you found Uh, in regarding um, those questions? So right now, my research is still in the 1920s. One of the things that I've been able to work more substantially on is the rubber industry. Hmm. Uh, I live fairly close to the University of Akron, which hosts the uh, records of the Goodyear Rubber and Tire Company. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's astounding that I was able to get insight at Hagley actually was the role of the industrial assembly in shaping more corporate wide policies. So I came to Hagley to study the Bethlehem Steel Company, but I found documents related to a group called the Special Conference Committee, which Mm -hmm. was this group of employers in the 1920s who were all interested in fairly substantial managerial reforms. And this included companies like General Motors, it included Bethlehem and included Goodyear. And these, one of the major focuses of this group was figuring out best practices for company unions. Mm. And the things I found was that both Bethlehem and Goodyear had actually provided pretty substantial power for their company unions in terms of negotiating wages, Mm. which is something that a lot of scholars had not really spent as much focus on how much Uh, control did these company unions have over setting wages. Hmm. At Goodyear in the early 1920s, the Goodyear Rubber and Tire Company uh, had decided to modernize its wage rates across its different departments, which had been set on a post or ad hoc basis, essentially different Hmm. departments setting wage rates and peace rates at uh, on a sort of at need basis. So Goodyear decides to set a a company-wide standard and they put the, they insisted that the industrial assembly have say in how these uh, rates are set. At Bethlehem, the special conference committee reports that the, uh, in order for management to adjust the wages of more than a single employee, like say a department level, they needed to first get the approval of the employee representatives who are in charge of those employees. Hmm. So management can't really make any changes to wages beyond say giving an individual worker a pay raise or a pay cut, unless they go through the employee representation plan first. Hmm. 
that seems like a, a real concrete uh, amount of power given to these company unions, uh, and that has been overlooked in the literature. Yeah, there is. I mean, I, I don't want to give to. I want. I don't want to paint these company unions in too rosy uh, mm -hmm. color. I mean, mm -hmm. one big thing that has been a central debate about company unions is whether or not these are sincere efforts to uh, address employee concerns mm -hmm. or whether they're mm -hmm. simply uh, union avoidance tactics. And mm -hmm. obviously, there's companies that use that will focus on one or the other. And there's companies where both strategies are at present. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, what you see at some of these major firms is that there were very serious efforts to uh, present company unions as a means of addressing uh, employees' concerns, demonstrating that management did, in fact, have some level of goodwill in uh, engaging with employees. Mm -hmm. hmm. Well, I'd like to learn a little bit more about your use of the Hagley collections. You've mentioned looking at Bethlehem as well as the special conference committee. Could you have perhaps uh, explain a little bit more about the collections that you dived into, what you found, perhaps if there was anything especially exciting or surprising you found? Yeah. So one of the things that was a big concern with doing research on Bethlehem is that the company after it went out of business about 20 years ago is that its documents really went to the winds right lots of uh, different libraries hold different uh, pieces of the Bethlehem collection but it's really hard to find a centralized like a thorough centralized collection of them what I did find it Hagley was quite a bit of material that helps get a sense of what the company union at Bethlehem looked like. Mm -hmm. It Hagley holds a series of different uh, booklets that detail the structure of company unions at different divisions of Hagley, uh, mostly related to mining and shipbuilding, but Nonetheless, they give a sense of what the company union looked like in terms of how, how many employees did each representative represent? What did the, how were employee representatives supposed to meet with management? Who was allowed to vote and be representative at company unions? As well as detailing the, not the minutes, unfortunately, but still detailing topics that annual conferences between of the company union. Hmm. So what topics did were the company union supposed to engage with, with management hmm. at their different annual uh, conferences? And, and then, he, oh, please go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, and I was going to say that they also give a sense, at the very least, the initial attempts at forming a company union at Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. There's very rough meetings between management and employees during World War I as a result of the workers' councils established under the guidance of the uh, War Labor Board. 
And so you get a sense, at least initially, about how labor and management were working with one another. It's obviously mediated by the publications department of Bethlehem, but you, you get a sense of the issues that these early representatives were presenting to management, the ways that the company attempted to present the uh, company union is working for uh, labor's interests. Mm. Now, in these different criteria you've laid out, how did, say, the company unions differ from regular mainline labor unions, independent unions? That is to say, um, who can vote, what issues are being discussed, the nature of the representation? Um, are these company unions substantially different from independent unions, or, uh, or is there significant overlap? So, the, I, I mean, I should first lay out, at Bethlehem, the people who can vote are American citizens who are of the age of 21 and have worked at least 60 days at Bethlehem. Hmm. For representatives, that it, it extends, you have to have worked at Bethlehem for a year. Hmm. So in those cases, it's a bit more restrictive than what the union might necessarily insist to vote. You need to be a member of the union. Um, but one of the things that is interesting about company unions in contrast to what labor unions look like at this time is mm -hmm. that they tend to be more, they, everybody at a general plant is a member of the same company union. Hmm. So at Bethlehem, there's not really the distinction between like what craft you perform as for like what union you need to belong to. Hmm. Whereas in the 1920s, the AFL was largely dictated by craft unionism. And so at a general plant, you might have multiple different unions representing workers at, in one factory. Mm -hmm. And so in the case, many different union or left union critics of the AFL would actually point to company unions as in this light, being somewhat more progressive than the AFL is moving towards a more uh, encompassing form of unionism, even as mm -hmm. they criticize it. And that does seem at least theoretically um, in a structural sense to give the union more bargaining power if it's the entire workforce of the firm, of the plant rather, I suppose it depended, um, all under one tent uh, uh, from one bargaining position. Yeah. Um, I mean, bargaining power for company unions most frequently seems to take place. Uh, they, they most seem to be most effective at leveraging their power in times when unions are most aggressively organizing in that industry. On mm. Not terribly surprising. Uh, there's, I believe it's in 1923 that the uh, AFL is organizing in Akron, Ohio, where Goodyear is at. And the 
representatives of the company union become more aggressive in demanding, you know, pay increases. And Paul Litchfield and the management at Goodyear fairly hostile towards this at first. But as the industrial assembly continues to uh, uh, assert that, you know, we're, we demand these wage increases, uh, the management at Goodyear ultimately acquiesces to the demands. Hmm. And now it's hard to know to what extent the uh, independent union drive outside of Goodyear uh, actually motivated management at Goodyear to acquiesce, but uh, I, it, it's a powerful, it's, powerful factor uh, in the context driving yeah. uh, all, both sets of decision makers. Yeah, I, I, I guess the thing that I'm trying to say is that it's hard to know to what extent the uh, it, the role of these company unions as sort of all-encompassing structures actually empowered them in mm. disputes with management. Uh, there's a lot of different factors that really shape the uh, way that disputes between company unions and management sort of play out. Mm. Which makes perfect sense. Um, and yet, as, uh, as you mentioned before, the, for instance, the IWW has a vision of one big union as the ultimate um, apotheosis of labor, labor organization. And this is at least uh, a step in the right direction, even if there's some reason to believe these companies are trying to preempt uh, independent labor organization. Yeah, and it's really interesting that, I mean, two of the industries that I look at in my research, steel and rubber, mm -hmm. are the real early grounds for the CIO in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons I picked these two to focus on is to see the extent to which this these company unions as a project serve as sort of the early grounds for industrial unionism in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. Well, let's get to the 1930s. Um, how, how does this story end? How does the um, what's the end of the line for the company unions? Well, the real abrupt end is the passage of the National Labor Relations Act in 1935, mm -hmm. which bans employee-dominated unions, which means company unions. Uh, most companies that, that have installed these programs continue to use them until 1937, when the Supreme Court upholds the NLRA, mm -hmm. at which point most of these company unions dissolve. Um, a few of them become what's known as independent labor unions in uh, literature. Mm -hmm. And these are nominally independent unions that are still, are still like, they descended from the company unions of the 1920s and 30s. Mm -hmm. And while they look independent, many of their representatives were uh, former company union representatives. They still have very close relations with management mm. and over the course of the 1950s early 1960s these slowly fade as management attempts to exert uh, an increasing amount of control over the ILUs. Mm. Well what was it about company unions that uh, made national lawmakers uh, want to ban their practice? 
After the passage of the National Industrial Recovery Act, a lot of employees were concerned about the language in Section 7A, which implied that the federal government would endorse uh, labor union activity. Now, the language of this also, employers argued, uh, also sanctioned the establishment of company unions. And so this is like the last wave you see of uh, company union adoption on the part of employers, where a lot of different employers who had even previously been hostile towards company unions in the 1920s, uh, most prominently U.S. Steel, uh, mm -hmm. begin implementing company unions as a means of avoiding labor union organizing on their grounds. Mm -hmm. And U.S. Steel is an interesting contrast with Bethlehem because Bethlehem and many of the other little steel companies had implemented company unions shortly after World War I. U.S. Steel doesn't implement it until after the NIRA. And when the CIO under the Steel Workers Organizing Committee begins organizing in the steel industry, they're able to fairly quickly capture the company union at U.S. Steel and use it to organize the company uh, mm. into the CIO. The little steel companies, meanwhile, are a lot more effective at resisting the CIO's organizing drives. Mm. And so from and the company unions there will continue until the Supreme Court bans or upholds the ban on company unions. Well, Alex, this is just a fascinating story and I thank you so much for sharing it with us today. Thank you. You're welcome. And for the audience, if you would like more Hagley History Hangouts, more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology and Society and the Hagley Museum and Library, join us online. Uh, you can visit hagley.org, that's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. Don't be a stranger.